I'll invite you to take a Bible and to open it to Romans chapter 3, where we get good news for all of our mess-ups in the truth that is contained in Romans chapter 3. If you're a regular part of Lakeside, we've been going now through the book of Romans chapter by chapter, and we ended last week in verse 11 of chapter 2, and we're jumping ahead to chapter 3, so we're not reading the second half of chapter 2, but if I could summarize it to you, everything that Paul says in the second half of chapter 2 is very similar to what Jesus told in the form of a story about the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus told a story of someone who'd been beaten up and robbed and, and basically left for dead. And as people were coming by and seeing him in his need, there were people who you thought would have known um, what was the right thing to do and would have been helpful and compassionate to the person in need. They were of the official religious order of the day, but they found ways in their understanding of the law of God to find an excuse to not help a person in need. And so multiple people walk by failing to show compassion for the person who is in need. And then someone who comes by and just has the common sense and compassion to care for someone who is hurting, a Samaritan goes ahead and takes care of the person in need, puts him up in a hotel, and then tells the innkeeper, you know, charge everything this person needs to my account. And Jesus told that story to convict the people of his day to say, you found a way to teach the law and to administer the law in the temple and to tell others what to do without doing it yourself. And you found this way of using the law to, to not do the very thing it's meant to encourage you to, which is towards loving God and loving other people. And, and there's a way in which even in our religious devotion and zeal, we can miss the whole point. And we can think we're being faithful, we can think we're being zealous, and yet somehow our own religion has become an excuse for us to not do the right thing. And someone who maybe doesn't have all of that law and doesn't have all of that instruction, but convicted by conscience or reason or circumstance can end up doing in the moment what is the right thing to do. And that's what Paul says in the second half. So please read it and, and see and test that I'm telling you the accurate thing. But he is um, saying that there is a way in which Gentiles and Jews, those who have the law and don't have the law, still are in need of something more. That the law in and of itself won't always lead people to the right thing. And that's why he begins now, chapter 3, in this way. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does that faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still be condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. <clears throat> For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that's where we'll conclude our reading for today. So Paul's first and primary point in this chapter is as he's been started in uh, chapter 1 of verse 18 talking about the wrath of God against all unrighteousness and describing the condition that all of us live under, that we all are in a world that is in the dominion of sin and the brokenness of this experience. We might not all experience it in the same way, and surely as God had given his revealed law to the Jewish nation and they were received blessing from that, They were still receiving that within the context of a world that is broken and fallen. And so he is making the case that there was nothing ever wrong in the law itself as it was given. It was a good thing, but we have a way of making even good things bad. We have a way of missing the point of even the gifts that God gives us, even the blessings that he gives us. And so in the law, God said, here's blessing and here's cursing. Do this and you'll be blessed. Do this and you'll be cursed. We also have an amazing capacity to take blessings and to turn them into curses when we don't enjoy them or use them in the proper way. And one of the words that Paul uses um, in this chapter is to say that it's through the law that we learn that we're under sin. So if you uh, think of it in the sense of a, a window, that a window is a good thing. But by its very design and purpose, you're supposed to be able to see through it to something else. That if you're looking at a window and all you can see is the window and you can't see through it, then something's wrong. It's been a long time since it's been cleaned. (laughs) Uh, If all you see are fingerprints or fog or steam or something, then it's not doing what was its designed and intended purpose. 
we, we love it whenever we are able to look out a window onto a beautiful scenery. And we might even say, that's a gorgeous window. It is. You need it to be able to see through walls. But therefore, when it appropriately serves its purpose, we see not just it, but we see through it to what was supposed to capture our attention all along the way. And everything God has given us has been meant to do that. That through what he's given, we see him. When we hear the law, it shows us what he's like, what his character is like, his goodness, his justice, his mercy and compassion. But when we take what he's given us and we no longer keep looking at him, but we find ways to now use it to our own advantage and buy it for some of the Jews to make themselves feel superior to other people or other nations, say, wait a minute, no, you missed the whole point. And the problem is not the law itself. It is a good thing. But no one by any law will be justified before God. And so it's the first point he makes. By works of the law, no one will be justified. And he's saying that all of us, whatever laws we had growing up or didn't have, whatever country we were born in, there's none of us that lives up perfectly to whatever the laws or instructions that we've been given. All of us fail to measure perfectly up to whatever standard we have, even the standards that we set for ourselves. And so Paul isn't you know, standing in judgment over all the nations and saying everyone else is wrong, but we're right. He's including himself and his own nation in this condemnation. He's saying even our laws, which are good, and the precepts that we've been given, that in the Psalms we praise God for and we thank him for giving us, even by those good things, we all fall short. None of us is perfect. And so if you will, if you'll imagine that you know, some people in, in our day, if they're looking up at the sun, some might be down in valleys looking at it, some might be standing on mountaintops with better views, but neither of them, if they jump, can reach it. There might be different vantage points and different experiences that we have in this world, but the sun is still so far beyond us that none of us on the tallest mountain with the highest vertical can jump high enough to get there. We fall short. That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying everything we do is equally bad and none of us ever does anything meaningful. But he's saying even in our best day, even our most meaningful actions, they still fall short to what we see through the law if we look at the glory and the grandeur of God. What real perfection is, what real holiness is, what real beauty is. And like I said, this is a dangerous ground. It has a way of almost insulting everyone except that Paul is just as willing to include himself and his own background in this. Say this is the same condemnation that he's under and that he was someone who excelled in his own religious commitment and practice. He was passionate about what he did until he learned that even in all of his passion and zeal, he completely missed the mark. And we have a way of taking those good things that God is giving them and doing them for the wrong reason. And so sometimes even our efforts like compassion, uh, our efforts to do good deeds, we're always tempted to then do them not to really help people, but to feel better about ourselves. Paul is saying, no, that just that, that doesn't work. 
We have ways of even in our parenting to set standards, not out of actual care or concern, but because we want to look a certain way. And we want people to think certain thoughts about us because of the way we do things. And so then they'll think better of us. And it's, no, your responsibility as a parent is not to look good to anyone else. Your responsibility is to the people you're parenting and whatever is necessary for their growth and development. But we can take all kinds of otherwise good things and miss the blessing that God has for us. And the good things can become bad things. And Paul says, and he repeats it in multiple ways, no one justified by the law, everyone falls short, Jews and Gentiles, all are under sin. The good news, though, the turn in the chapter is in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So that if we can accept his premise that none of us on our best day can reach the standard of glory and beauty and perfection and holiness that we even desire, if that's true, that no one can do that, now he says what's also true is that by faith in Jesus, anyone can be justified. This good news that he is sharing is as universal as the bad news is that he just shared. That there's no one, no religious system, no people group, no language, no society, no civilization out there who's attained the glory that we long for. And yet anyone, anywhere, by faith in Christ can receive the righteousness of God as a gift. And hear what he's talking about. One of the ways to a picture it is when you in your own mind imagine God looking down upon you right now. How do you imagine it? Is he frowning over you? Is he like rolling his eyes at you and disappointed in you? Yesterday, most of the day, for my youngest one, he was getting a frown. <laughs> Just was not cooperating. And no matter how many times I nicely tried to do things or not nicely tried to motivate behavior I just I came down the stairs and he would just go like this and he just wouldn't make eye contact with me because he knew that he was still doing what it was that had him in trouble so if you would have asked him like oh no yeah he's and I don't even want to look up at him because I sense that there's this displeasure there's this frustration and we're like that with our heavenly father if if you're thinking of your creator and your maker is right now looking upon you with disgust, discouragement, frustration. It, it's not very motivating for you to look up. And Paul's just said, you know what? All of us on our best day, we can't earn it. We can't earn the pleasure and the favor of God. None of us can. The best that we produce is very, very minimal. But there is a way that the righteousness of God which is his divine favor and his pleasure and his smile, that it can come to us. That we can believe by faith in Jesus that he is in fact looking down upon us with delight, with a smile. What he would later in, in chapter 8 say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, how would, how would we go from that to that? This truth that we all know that we don't measure up, 
to this confidence that we live our lives under the favor and grace and pleasure of God. Well, he says this is something that comes to us as a gift. Though it's not something that we can earn on our own, it's something that if he chooses to, he can provide to us as a gift. And then he tells us how he did it. It says he put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood for our sin. So what it's saying is he put him forward so that all of that displeasure, all of that frowning, all of that discouragement could be the word propitiation. It's a big word, but it just means absorbing the wrath. So if I talked about a window as something you want to see through, Uh, now we're thinking of a different material when we think of what has the capacity to absorb. So one of the things we were doing yesterday, my father-in-law was over helping uh, add some insulation to an area that we get a lot of cold weather coming in uh, in the wintertime or when it's hot. Just basically whatever it is outside is inside because there's nothing in there that absorbs what is on the outside and prevents it from coming through. And so now the boys are looking at it and what is this green foam? Like what does it do? trying to explain to them, we're putting this here because we don't want to put a window here. That'll, that'll complicate our situation. What we want here is something that can receive, absorb, and stop what's coming toward it so that it doesn't pass through. And Paul is saying that Christ has been put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That in his life, he, he, he knew the pleasure of his father. When he was baptized, the heavens opened and it said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and there's Moses and there's Elijah, the father doesn't say, and look, look at whose company he's with. He said, no, 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 this is my one and only son. They bow down to him. All of the words from the father to the son in the gospels are words of affirmation and pleasure of smiling and acceptance from the father to the son and paul is saying christ has been put forward as a propitiation for us that he would take all of the displeasure all of the sadness all of the sin all of the right justice against and the wrath against our sin and he would absorb it in such a way that it doesn't pass through to us that's the concept I can remember one time, um, I don't remember where Brad was, but Brad was out of town, so he asked me to do youth group one night. And so for the starter, I just did this activity, uh, would you rather? And so you just separate everyone in a room and stand in the middle, okay, would you rather eat a Snickers or a Reese's? And so the Snickers go over here and the Reese's go over there. Would you rather have a Coke or a Pepsi? And you do this thing and just kind of to see what, how people would respond to a simple question. When I asked... Would you rather receive a gift or a genuine compliment? A hundred percent of the room went on the side of a genuine compliment. It it surprised everyone involved because everything else was, you know, 50-50 and making fun of each other. I can't believe you like that and I can't believe you want that sort of a thing. But it was this visible demonstration of, wow, there is a universal craving in your heart and in mine to hear the pleasure of another whom we look up to, whom we love, to hear them say, well done, great job, I love you, 
That's beautiful. Thanks for doing that. And Christ, who heard that all the time, as a gift, absorbed all of the displeasure, all of the frowning on the cross. It's one of the parts then in the gospel where no voice comes. The heavens don't open when Christ is on the cross and the sky is darkened and we hear the pleasure of the Father over the Son because what he is doing on the cross for you and for me and what we're celebrating in communion is that he has absorbed the displeasure. He has taken on all of the criticism, the just criticism and wrath. And he's given to us as a gift his righteousness so that all of those things said about himself all of that pleasure is something that now can be said of us that's what it means for you and I to now be justified by his grace if we're fully justified by his grace that means we're in a right standing it's like we did all the right things it's not just that we didn't do the bad things it's that he views us by grace as a gift as people to whom he will one day say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That we will get that divine applause and compliment and that we will get that as an act of his grace because that's what he's done for us in his son. And that's the good news that by faith in Jesus Christ, Anyone can live their life in the knowledge with everything they struggle, with every way they know they don't measure up, with every bit of conflict in them and still say, but I know the Heavenly Father looks down on me and he looks down on me with love and compassion and joy and he sees beauty. When I look in a mirror and I just see ugliness, I see everything I'm not, everything I wish I could maybe one day be or I just realize I'm, I'm less and less like I used to be but I know when I read the scriptures it tells me that the, my heavenly father looks down on me and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus there is only affirmation there is only acceptance and pleasure and what was impossible for any of us to attain has become available to us in the form of a gift that's the good news. Now, the implication of that, so if by the works of the law, no one can be justified, but if there's a way by a gift and by grace that anyone can be, then by implication, this is a message for everyone. And that, that's Paul's implication. Everyone needs to hear this. Is God the God of the Jews? No. Is he the God of the Gentiles? Yes. So who needs to hear this? Jews and Gentiles. Everyone. This is good news to know that we already stand in the favor of God because of Jesus Christ. And that therefore everything else we consider to do, we do out of the overflow of that. So Paul's not writing this letter to a church in Rome to say, guys, God's so angry at you. If you do this and you do this and you do this, then maybe he won't be. He's saying, listen, He's already done in his son everything that was needed to offer to you and me this amazing gift of grace. To absorb the punishment and the shame that would come to us and to give us 
the joy and the pleasure of being in his fellowship. And that's why he wants to go and tell as many people as possible about this. And so remember, he's writing this letter while he's about to travel back to Jerusalem to take a collection that he's acquired for the poor there. He sends Phoebe to Rome to include this letter because he's also hoping that the church in Rome will then one day be the, the base so that he can go to Spain. Paul has the whole map of the empire in his mind to say, I want everyone to have an opportunity to hear that this universal craving that we all have to receive a genuine affirmation and compliment from someone we admire is what God has offered us in the gospel. What he has graciously received on our behalf to give. And I get to tell them that Christ has already done everything needed. Uh, it was just a, a, a random small little road trip this week um, somewhere. I don't even know where the question came from, but the question in the back of the car came, Mom and Dad, what is forgiveness? Okay, so how do I explain this? <laughs> I said, well, you can never forgive someone until you're okay losing whatever you lost. So that if someone steals a toy from you, and you come and you tell me, and I find out, if I go get it and say, hey, you took that, <laughs> give it back to me, and I give it to you, that's not forgiveness, that's justice. For you to forgive someone, you have to be okay not getting your toy back. You have to accept the loss, whatever you lost. And the truth of the gospel is that God could not simply arbitrarily forgive. Forgiveness costs something. And it cost Christ the cross. But one of the reasons that we celebrate communion is the reminder is that we come and say, before any of us were ever born, before we ever did anything, he has shown us that he is willing to absorb the cost. He is willing to accept the loss. And that's why this message goes forth. Yes, Paul said, creation speaks of the glory of God and everyone knows in their conscience that there is a God. But it is only in the celebration of the Lord's table. Where else will people hear that the God who made them died for them? Where else will they hear that the wrath has been absorbed that they're no longer under displeasure, but under grace. Where else but the pronouncement of those who go forward and say who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, will they ever hear that? The trees will never tell them that. The sunrise will never tell them that. A solar eclipse will never tell them that. It requires people who know the content of the gospel and can share it with other people and believe that everyone needs to hear this. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. It means that we don't presume that our children are just okay because they're our children. Or, uh, oh, we live in a nicer part of the country and so we're doing better than most people. No, no, no. Everyone needs this. We need this. Because again, it can so quickly turn into a sense of superiority over and against other people unless we continually remind ourselves, no, 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 I need this message. I only have the pleasure of my heavenly father over me because of the gift and the sacrifice and the cost-absorbing love 
of his son. So I don't have a reason to feel better than anyone or a sense of superiority against anyone. I can count all of the blessings that I've had and name them as blessings, but not turn them into curses by feeling that somehow all those blessings came to me because I did something. And then it creates in us a desire and a willingness to extend blessing to other people. So one of the reasons that we create an opportunity for people to give to the cause of missions is, again, not to go back and say, well, you have to give because if you don't give, God's going to be mad at you and you're not going to be justified and so you need to do this in order to get... No, no, no. We're not trying to guilt anyone into anything. When Paul specifically talks about in Corinthians, he says, you know what God wants? God wants cheerful givers. God wants people who say, oh my goodness, I get to wake up every day under the pleasure of God, under his favor, as if I live the life of his son. With all of the internal turmoil I have and all the contradictions that are inside of me and the ways I know I don't measure up, I get to stand in grace. I'm justified as a gift that he's given me. And so I don't have the opportunity to do this or that, to feel better about myself, if I can, I get to. And if it's a situation where I can't, but I get to serve with my time or I get to serve with my talent, great. But it isn't, again, now just another way as Christians to do something to feel good about ourselves. It is an opportunity as Christians who say we so understand the gospel and the goodness of what God has offered us that we are glad to do all the good we can in all the ways we can in whatever way we can. Not, again, to fall back into the trap of feeling better about ourselves, but because Christ has already done everything to bring us into that right relationship. And so that's why Paul, after he's explained the grace, he goes on to say, so have I just said that the law doesn't matter? No, not at all. Do everything it tells you to do. (laughs) Live in the goodness that God originally gave in it but do it now, not to get something. Do it because you've already received everything you could have hoped for, and you've been set free to be a blessing to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of being justified by your grace. That though we stand internally under a sense of shame and condemnation, of things we've done and said and thought, that it is really possible for us to stand in grace, to not walk around with weak knees and with our heads down, simply awaiting the next punishment, but in looking up to you and seeing your love manifested for us on the cross, We can live in the freedom and the joy and the overflow of all that you've given to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your son who alone has the ability to absorb all that was rightly coming against us so that we can now be safe and protected. But help us to use that safety and that freedom not as an excuse to laziness or inactivity, but as a motivation to live our lives with joy 
and excellence and generosity and passion and purpose. In Jesus' name we pray.